Well, we made it down the racetrack known as I-35, both Sunday and today. We might have averaged faster than any car should drive outside of a NASCAR course, but it seems like it's what you have to do to stay alive and not get run over on I-35. So, no, church family, we had, we had a great trip. Uh, Bethany got the uh, opportunity to go back to seminary and speak to the seminary wives, uh, uh, wives of seminary students at a ministry they have Monday night, and that was a sweet deal for her. I got, we got some time with family, got to actually spend some time and see some former professors, see my former pastor, and had breakfast with him. And all that to just say is uh, one of the questions that come up inevitably is about how we're doing, and you as a church family, and I just tell you, we're, I speak about you with a lot of joy and gratitude. And so it's, uh, and we're glad to be back. It's Fun to see family, but it's a joy to roll into town and to go, okay, we're back, we're home. And, uh, and, and that, that is less about the house and the city than it is about you as our church family. So just know we're grateful for y'all. Uh, we're going we're gonna to stay flip-flop this week, and we're going to end in prayer because that's quite literally where we're going to end tonight as far as Scripture. And we've been walking through for the last several weeks, we've been walking through uh, Scripture looking at the reality that when, when we as Christians... Look at the world. If we're going to have a biblical worldview, then when we look at the world, we have to understand that there is a real, valuable, meaningful, physical world that we can see, that we live and move and breathe, that we can explore, in which uh, science can be done because you're able to see something and make a hypothesis and repeat an experiment on it and come to, I mean, this is the reality. This, this is daily life uh, for, uh, for every child learning to explore and learn the world. That's part of what's fun. I took Jesse up to campus yesterday, and she's playing with this plant and running through that shrub. That's part of it. We live in a real, tangible world. But we also understand as believers that we do not only live in a real, materialistic world, just like we also understand that as human beings, image bearers of God, we are not only just flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood, but we are also spirit. There is also a spiritual realm would be the term that we would put to it. In this spiritual realm, there is a real place, heaven, where God has chosen to most fully uh, express His glory and, and for in the fullness of His presence to dwell. I say chosen because there was one point where there was no heaven. God created heaven. In heaven are the angels. In heaven are those who are in Christ and have died. We also know that in the spiritual realm, there is a place that God has made that we would call hell. It is the place where those outside of Christ, those opposed to Christ, demons, humans, where they go and receive just punishment for their rebellion. We understand that, that in the spiritual realm, these angels and some of these demons, some are already bound in chains, some are, are free. We understand that these angels and demons, they, they are rarely ever seen in fact, truthfully, in Scripture, the only ones that are ever seen are, are angels when they uh, appear sometimes. Demons, rather, in, uh, are seen inhabiting, uh, in, in possession. But that these beings have the ability to interact inside of our physical world for spiritual purposes. We have to understand all of this as believers, that when, when we move, when we move, when we, when we look around, when we see, and, and part of what we've driven at in all of this as we've walked through is we've got to know fact from fiction. And by the way, if you'll remember a couple weeks ago, I told you uh, when we walked through the stuff on angels, this was just funny to me. Uh, I don't ever, um, I'd be terrified if anybody ever looked through posts I save on Instagram because I save a lot of heretical posts that I find. Why? Because they're great illustrations. <laughs> and so I save them for these, <laughs> these purposes. But I, I told you that, remember, my, what we're trying to do is I'm not everything about angels and scripture doesn't tell us everything. And even some of the stuff it says, I can't totally tell you everything that we could maybe have questions about. So I told you that angels only ever appear in the masculine in Scripture. And I said, I'm not saying, therefore, that there can't ever be an angel who's a, a female, but I am just saying that there's not ever one pictured in all of Scripture. And that's not making a statement about our genders, our male and femaleness as humans. But then I came across a, a deal, one, one, of, <laughs> one of the... Uh, Big deals in Catholicism is 
Lady of Fatima, who was a female angel who appeared to shepherds supposedly multiple times, and they venerate the Lady of Fatima, and they pray to her inside of the Catholic Church. So I can't fully tell you everything about angels, but I can tell you the Bible says, and I've even made this comment, if someone ever tells you a female angel showed up to them and said this, this, and that, and asked them to do things outside of Scripture, you should not even consider that an angel that is completely and totally aroused. Boom, Instagram post a couple days later. Wow, look at that. Didn't even know that was a thing. So I give you that to just say what we're trying to do is not allow our understanding of heaven and hell and angels and demons and spiritual warfare to be driven by culture, to be driven by Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry uh, pictures of those things, to not be driven even by Christian culture, to not, if our philosophy of an understanding of spiritual warfare is entirely dependent upon Frank Peretti and This Present Darkness, which is a great book, I'm not knocking the book, but it is a work of fiction. It's a work of fiction, certainly based on things from Scripture, but Jesus did not breathe out This Present Darkness. Jesus breathed out the Word of God. So we want to make sure that we are completely and totally focused in on what the Word says, and that's what we're doing tonight. And so I told you last week we're going to start in Ephesians and we'd finish in Ephesians. Well, we're going to do the same thing tonight, except we will finish in Ephesians, unlike last week. So if you got your Bibles, we want to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I can't tell you what page number it is because I don't know what Bible you have. So... Uh, but Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to pick up here in verse 10. And here's what, here's what we see. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of this reality, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day, having done everything to stand firm." So Paul, coming to the end of the letter of Ephesians, and I will, uh, I'll remind you, uh, Ephesians is literally structured in half. Chapters 1 through 3 focus heavily on theology, what we believe, what is objectively true. Chapters 4 through 6 then, and especially chapter 4 through half of chapter 6, how does that work itself out in daily life? Application. How does this theology play out in the way we live and move and breathe? And then you get to the end of the letter, and all of a sudden, he makes it clear. And remember, by the way, Ephesians, you want to talk about countercultural truth? Ephesians says part of the application of correct theology is that wives submit to husbands, that husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church, that children submit to the authority of their parents. Those are countercultural messages today. So isn't it interesting that when we get to the end, all of a sudden we're being turned to, that's what he says, be strong, be strengthened. By the way, that's a command, not a suggestion. Be strengthened, become strong in the Lord. And it says in the strength of his might, or quite literally the vast strength, the, the miter power uh, a, a word that refers to uh, being abundantly effective to the end gained. It means to, to overcome anything that stands in his way. And then the, the next word, the strength which one has, possesses, literally it's saying, be strengthened, be empowered in the Lord in the absolute, overwhelming, overcoming, unstoppable power of his might, which he possesses. It is unbelievable uh, imagery that speaks to the power and the might of the Lord. And it says, hey, in light of all of this, be strong, be, be strengthened, be, why on earth would you need to be strengthened? Because if you're going to believe what is true and it's going to carry out the gospel message in your life, the lifestyle of Christ, you're going to be going against every current and stream and wind that is in this world. Because the world itself is in rebellion against Christ. It's going to take being strong. It says, put on the full armor of God. By the way, put on there is not descriptive. It's not suggestive. It is an imperative verb. Not only that, 
But the voice of the verb, put on, it's a middle deponent verb. Part of what that means is it's a way of saying it's a certain kind of middle, uh, middle ver- uh, voice verb that's active. But when you go there, the middle voice is you yourself. Now, here's why this is important. When it says, put on the armor of God, you yourself, as, as if you're really in Christ, put on the armor. That means no one else can put on the armor for you. Not even God can put on the armor for you, or not can't. God is not going to put on your armor for you. You and I are commanded, put on the armor. I cannot put on Bethany's armor, and she can't put mine on. I am responsible to, to, to be strengthened in the strength of the Lord and to put on, to follow that command, to put on the armor that God has given. And it says to put on the full armor, the full armor, the complete outfit of warfare that goes to a soldier. Now, sometimes when we get in later here in a second to the armor of God, sometimes we can make too much distinction. We're going to have a seven-week Bible study on the belt of truth, followed by another seven-week Bible study. Sometimes we can make too much of a distinction that I'm not sure even the Lord was leading Paul to make. But it is clear you and I are not just to put on part of the armor. You got to put it all on. You got to put it all on. Well, that's great that you know truth and you've girded up your loins in truth. That's awesome. But if you don't shod your feet with the gospel of peace, you're going to be sloshing around all over that muddy battlefield. Put on the full armor. If you miss any part of it, just put on the full armor. It says, so that, this is the purpose for being strengthened, for putting on the armor, so that you will be able to stand firm, to hold your ground. I mean, what a beautiful imagery, church family. Here is the ground that God has called you to stand on. Here is the place he's called you to stand. And you and I are called to stand so that you can hold your ground. Not be pushed back so that you can hold the watch post, so that you can stand and be in the critical position on the battlefield. And notice what you're standing firm against, the schemes of the devil. We mentioned this last week. Here's where Paul starts to go. He said, hey, as you, as you believe this truth, church in Ephesus, as you allow this truth to carry out in your life, chapters four, five, and the first half of six, all of these ways of living, as you do this, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition. You're going to be opposed politically. You're going to be opposed, some of you, in your own families. You're going to be opposed by the schools. You're going to be opposed in the workplace. You are going to face severe opposition. In fact, it was in Ephesus, if I remember correctly, that Paul was uh, thrown to the wild beasts. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face persecution. And church, don't you dare think for a second that that person up in the box who says uh, guilty or not guilty, that that's who your real opposition is. Your opposition who you're standing against, who you're really going against is the devil and his schemes. The struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, meaning the spiritual realm. This is who's really coming after you. We saw that word last week, schemes. It's not just the casual idea of, of a prankster. Oh, you know, what are the kids doing? Oh, it's quiet in there. They must be scheming up something. That's not the idea of schemes here. It's the idea of a, a very deceptive, intentional, brilliant, intellectual plan and strategy to destroy someone. This is far from this being the scheme of kids in the room quieter. I remember being a youth pastor and kids would, <laughs> kids would try to do stuff to trick you. And you're like, do you not think that I'm not already five steps ahead of you? Hey, Wes, you want to try this jelly bean? No, I don't. Why not? It's really good. No, it's not. It's one of those nasty poop-flavored ones from the, the joke pack. Like, I'm not dumb. I wasn't born yesterday. No, this is the kind of scheming that goes on in siloed rooms where nobody knows by the most brilliant of minds. But if they're the schemes of the devil, it's silos that we can't see in the spiritual realms by minds far more brilliant than anything you or I or this world has to offer. 
It says that our battle, that struggle, that word struggle is interesting because it's not necessarily the word used in warfare. It's a word we talked about. It's, it's the idea of, of Greco-Roman wrestling. It speaks of this intense, close, close uh, combat that is personal, that is personal. It's not just broad. It's not just trying to take, it's personal. It's directed. It knows, it says this is, we, we stand against these spiritual forces and I'll remind you at this point, church family, as we've walked through all of this, and I, and I just keep this in front of us, the overwhelming, which you see in Scripture, when it comes to spiritual warfare, is not the picture of a bunch of possessed, crazed people running around like zombies from some apocalyptic show. And then us as believers running around with crosses and wooden pegs and garlic trying to ward them off like it's, like it's a horror flick. That is not the norm of what you see patterned in Scripture. What you do see over and over again in Scripture is be transformed in your mind. Take captive your thoughts. The enemy is a liar. He is deceitful. He appears as an angel of light. You see constantly this, this imagery and this reality that what is ultimately going on, the forefront of spiritual warfare, is not how many demons have you cast out, but it's how many false thoughts have you let take over your mind as a believer. And then that carries over into society. Yes, you look around our society today, there are all sorts of wicked things happening. There are wicked ideologies that real physical people are putting into place. Real physical people who are born by nature sinners, who therefore have a desire and no other ability to do anything than sin, but who also have the spiritual forces of darkness who are whispering all those ideas even further and on even more. It's a battle of truth. It's a battle of the mind. It's a battle of, and so this is what it says, verse 13. Take up, therefore, it repeats, take up, put it on, carry it, a military term describing the last preparation, the final steps necessary. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So church family, if we're going as believers, as followers of Christ to engage in spiritual warfare, to stand firm, and I think the imagery of standing firm is brilliant. Why does it say stand firm and not take over? Because Jesus already won. There's nothing to take over. We're given a position in Christ. We don't have anything more to take over. We're supposed to stand firm in that position in Christ. We're to stand firm in the ground. We're to stand firm in that position in this world. We're to stand firm. And how do you do it? How do you resist in that evil day? By the way, resist, that you will be able to resist implies that it's actually possible to stare the spiritual battle in the face and experience victory now. How are you gonna do it? You're gonna put on the full armor of God. Look what it says. Stand firm, therefore, stand firm in this way, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped onto your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Now, as I told you, sometimes we can make these things too distinct. What Paul is describing is armor that would be very familiar to someone who's seen a Roman soldier, which by the way, he would be chained up to riding from prison in Rome as he's writing this. Be very visual for him. Uh, the, to the total armor speaks of not as if really all these are not supposed to be individual parts. They're all interconnected. They're also, that's why they take up the full armor. They're all there, but Nonetheless, it does specify some things. It says, having, uh, the way my translation here says, having belted your weight with truth, or my preferred translation, having girded up your loins with truth, having girded oneself. Uh, and then there's different aspects of that. A Roman soldier wore at least three wide belts or girdles. There was the, the outer leather-like apron, which was worn to provide protection to the lower abdomen. The sword belt, which was buckled together with the sword and was decisive in being able to pull that sword out and sheathe it and pull it out and sheathe it. 
And then there is a special belt or sash designating an officer or high official. There's also the imagery of just the verb girded yourself. Uh, as, as, to me, it's one of my favorite verbs in, in, in Scripture. Uh, if you've ever been in a, uh, any kind of Easter pageant, Christmas pageant, where you've worn uh, traditional outfits from the first century, whether you're a guy or a lady, uh, they're not, uh, they're, they're, they're long, they're cumbersome. If you try to go play flag football in them, it's not going to work out so hot. But instead, what they would do is you would gird your loins. You would take that length, you would pull it up, you would twist it, you would roll it around and tie it, and essentially have a, a uh, oh, uh, what are those called? Shoot. Um, a onesie. What's, what, what am I thinking of, though? It's, ladies wear them. Uh, Romper, a romper, that's what it is. It's like, I know this word, we buy them for Jesse. I can't think of what it is. Uh, essentially, you have a first century romper. Why? Because now that all of a sudden you don't have anything going down past your mid thigh, you can move in all sorts of ways. Your mobility is quick. The girdling of the belt of truth means. Truth is what enables you and I to not fall over our feet. Truth is what enables you and I to have mobility on the battlefield. Truth is what it is. And why do we start there? Because what is Satan's primary tactic? Lies. And when you look in Scripture and see him actually spreading his lies, what do you see? You don't see absurd lies that are the polar opposite of truth. You see lies that take a little bit of truth and even quote Scripture, but mix it with error. Did God really say that if you eat of any tree, you will die? Well, no, God didn't say that. Jesus, the word says, if you command, his, he's commanded his angels charge over you, so throw yourself off. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're right, the word says that, but that's putting God to the test, which is a false application of that passage. This is the primary way that Satan attacks. So, so how are you going to know what a lie is? Well, if you're so familiar with the truth, you can spot the lie. So how do you gird yourself in truth? Church family, there is no other simple way to this. To gird yourself in truth means we have to know the word. We have to know the Word. It's going to involve being in the Word, reading the Word, meditating on the Word, quoting the Word, resting in the Word. It's going to mean taking those truths in the Word that you read in your own personal time in the, in the Word, that you maybe write up on a card and post on a cabinet and read as you're going about your day, that you hear in Sunday school, that you hear in church on Sunday preach, that you hear on Wednesday. It's going to be actually taking those truths and not just being able to recite them for your Awana badge, but to actually appropriate them and, and, and bring them into action in your life. And that's where a lot of us fall short. Some of us fail to gird our loins because we don't know truth. We've not ever really read the Bible. We get distracted by other things or we, we, decide, to, uh, re, we decide to read the Bible from cover to cover and we get in Leviticus and get frustrated that it's really... Uh, weird, and then we just go, well, rather than going to somewhere else in the Bible, I'll just stop reading my Bible. Please, if you get stuck in Leviticus, just turn somewhere else in the Bible. Go read the Psalms for a while and feel a lot more emotional and better about life, and, and, and don't read Leviticus for a bit. Just go somewhere else. Some of us, we know the Word, but when we hear those lies, we just hook, line, and sinker go, yeah, you know what? That's right. I know that the word says I am fearfully and wonderfully created, but anytime the enemy throws a thought of absolute just self-depreciation at me, I'm going to totally believe it. I am just horrible. Why do I even deserve to live? Or, I mean, just go down, just go down the line. I know truth. I know truth says that if I engage in this, this sexual sin over here, it may feel pleasurable for a moment, but it will be like a cancer that devastates my soul and destroys fellowship with God and brings devastation into other relationships. I know the truth, but this feels really good in the moment, so I'm going to go for it. There's all different ways that we fail to gird our loins with truth between not knowing truth, not appropriating truth, being too busy to go back to the truth. But the primary way, and, this is, and, and, and you, before you put the rest of the armor on, you've got to gird yourself up. The belt is the centerpiece that holds it all together. And if you and I do not know truth, or better yet, 
Some ways we don't know truth is because we believe pithy little sayings that have long been accepted as truth, but then you actually can't find them in Scripture. That's another way we fail. We've got to know the truth. It's why there should be a hunger. Think about Psalm 119. Every Iwana kid knows, oh, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Yeah, but what's, what's, the, what's in the longest chapter of the Bible, what is the theme over and over and over and over and over? It's, a, it's the longest chapter in the Bible all about the Bible and all about the desperate longing for the truth of the Word and how the truth of the Word brings life. I don't know, maybe we should pay attention that the longest chapter of the Bible is all about how desperately we need the Word. And if you go, man, I just am struggling with longing in the Word, can I also just encourage you, just pray and say, Lord, please change my heart. And then get in the Word. Be in the Word. We must be people of the Word. Oh, more could be said there, but we'll keep going. Having girded your loins with the, with the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And righteousness there, really, it, it's a double connotation. It can mean two things, and really, if we understand it fully, it, it means both. First, righteousness speaks of that righteousness which none of us have. That righteousness, that right standing with God that none of us have in and of ourselves. But Jesus has that right standing with God in his life and his work and his death and in his resurrection. Those things, when you and I come to faith in Christ and we are now found in Christ, it's in Christ we've been made righteous. We've been declared righteous, right with God. And you and I have to understand that because that's the first part of righteousness in our lives. If we think in any way my rightness with God is based on my performance as a Christian, we will constantly fail in the second half of righteousness. Our righteousness, if you are a child of God, our righteousness is not based on how excellent your life as a believer is in conformity to Scripture. It is based solely on how flawlessly Jesus lived the life that we have always failed. How completely he drank every last drop of the just wrath of God that's due for me and for you. And how eternally he is risen and delights to save and declare righteous those who come to faith in him. You and I never have to work to be righteous. We are righteous in Christ. And when we understand that and by faith rest in that, then we get to the second half, which is living that righteousness out. A lot of times we flip the two. I got to live it out so that I can be righteous in God's sight. No, you are righteous in God's sight, and that's what enables us to live it out. To live out a, a, a righteous, a life that is in line with Christ's character. And the breastplate speaks of that piece of armor which protects your most vital organs. And so, how does this apply to spiritual warfare? Well, by putting on the, bre the, the, the breastplate of righteousness, by I learn to rest in Christ's righteousness. Well, that's going to defeat everything, every, every missile the enemy would shoot of condemnation that you're not good enough, you're not great enough, this, this failure in your past is keeping you, this, this, all of that condemnation instantly shut down when I rest in Christ's righteousness. Satan, you want to accuse me? You go right ahead, but you go walk over there and accuse Christ because I am righteous in Christ. Shuts that down. And when I understand that then and proceed to live out of Christ's righteousness, a righteous life, as I live following the Lord's word, doing what the Lord commands, you know how that, what that does? It shields me from spiritual warfare because instead of filling my body with the cancer of sin, there is a protection doing what God says. What do you, what do you mean? Well, temptation comes, spiritual warfare for a young man alone, to open up that computer, to find pornography. And when that person, when that young man goes, you know what, Jesus, I am righteous in you and out of that righteousness and that Holy Spirit, and he takes captive his thoughts and he goes, you know what, I'm gonna say no to this and do what scripture says and flee not only gonna say no, boom, shut down the computer and if I have to chunk it out the window and I flee, you know what happens? Spiritual warfare just failed in his life. He didn't fall, he fled. The fleeing kept him from falling. That's what, we mean. That's, that's what we mean here by the breastplate of righteousness. When we choose to live in righteousness based on Christ's righteousness, we'll be protected from both legalism and, and the other extreme, which is do-whatever-I-want-ism. The breastplate of righteousness. 
Not only that, but having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, having strapped on, and, it, and if it was referring to a Roman soldiers, the, the sandals they wore for battle were a thick-soled shoe that had these basically nails driven through them for deep spikes that would allow them on the battlefield to sink their feet into the ground. So if it's tall grass or if it's muddy or if it's, they wouldn't be moved, they would be fixed, they would be firm, or not just fixed and firm, but they could move on the field easily. Uh, this is why growing up, I, uh, when I played sports, man, give me a pair of metal baseball spikes any day of any kind of cleat. Why? You know, football spikes, soccer spikes, they're plastic. And sometimes you can get short ones, sometimes you can get long ones, depending on the height of the grass. But at the end of the day, plastic, while it keeps you from cutting people to shreds, it slips. But when you put on a pair of baseball spikes, you can plant your foot and move any direction. It doesn't matter what the grass is doing because the spikes sink into the ground. That's what it's talking about. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean, shod your feet in the gospel of peace? speaks twofold, or, or the readiness, the preparation. It speaks twofold. One, it, it, it speaks to an understanding of what the gospel message actually is. We've hinted at this all through. Know the truth. Know the truth of the gospel, that I was made righteous in Christ. This truth, my ability to stand firm is how ready, how tied, how, how much am I standing in the truth of the gospel? That's part of it. But it also, it's that word preparation or, or readiness it speaks to not just standing firmly, but it also speaks to the ability to move about. It means part of, part of how we win in spiritual warfare and not fall to the schemes of devil. the devil is on the battlefield of eternity in which we live right now. In the gospel of peace, we run on that battlefield to men and women who are lost and chained and held captive to sin, and we proclaim the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel to people who are lost is part of spiritual warfare. Because we looked at last week, what is ultimately the battle over? The battle is over souls. Any lost person that Satan can keep blinded and see them spend eternity in the flames of hell with him, he delights. And any believer who he's lost that opportunity to, he delights to do anything he can to ruin and destroy and, and, and keep Keep that believer from experiencing the fullness of Christ and salvation. So church family, understand what, what is ultimately uh, the purpose of persecution of Christians? To silence the gospel. So part of spiritual warfare, church family, is us sharing the gospel. Listen, let's just apply this big. Culture will never change because somehow a lost person wakes up one day and goes, you know what? We should be slightly more moral than we are. A lost person is going to change when they come to faith in Christ who alone is able to change them. But faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. How can they believe in him who they have not heard. So if you really want to attack the big picture of all the spiritual warfare and darkness in our culture, and don't mishear me, it's election season. By all means, as a good citizen in America, go vote. But a vote is not going to fix the spiritual warfare in our country. People coming to faith in Christ and becoming disciple-making disciples, that will fix some of the spiritual warfare in our country. But if we don't ever share the gospel, there's no shot of anyone coming to faith in Christ. Not no shot. God can work above and beyond us, but he chooses and delights to work through us. So how do we sod our feet? We know the gospel. We rest in the gospel. In church family, we have to share the gospel. That's how we shod our feet. And I just leave that big, by the way. I'm not saying you're a horrible Christian if you don't share the gospel with one person every day. I hear pastors saying, like, how on earth do you prepare to preach? Do you lead your staff? Do you make hospital calls and find one lost person every day to share the full gospel with and ask them to come to faith in Christ? I, I don't know how you do it. And have a family and have five kids. I don't know. So I'm not trying to give you a metric of you must share the gospel this many times. What I am saying is if we're never praying for opportunities to share the gospel and we're never sharing the gospel, that is a problem. 
And so allow the Lord to speak to our hearts as the Lord wants to speak to each and every one of our hearts. The shield of faith, the shield, it says taking up the shield of faith. The shield would have not been, uh, the shield is not Captain America's circle Frisbee shield. That's not the Roman shield. That's cool. And in my mind, I would love to visualize, yeah, being a spiritual warfare and having a shield you throw all around, and that's great. But the shield in, in Roman warfare, the shield was actually a door-shaped shield that was four foot high and two and a half feet wide. And what it was meant for, and, and many times it was actually covered in leather and doused in water. Why? It says, raising up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Why? Because you'd light your arrows on fire, and if they hit that shield, the, the water would help dampen and, and put out the fire. But the shield was big like that because the purpose was, having shod your feet with the gospel of peace where you've got some traction in the ground, the volley of arrows comes, you then kneel behind that shield, and that shield protects your entire body. That's the picture of the shield of faith to extinguish flaming arrows. And understand these arrows, uh, what could have been terrifying, if a flaming arrow hits your shield, the shield might have protected you, but if that fire very often would explode around the shield, you could be tempted to drop the shield and now you're exposed. It says, raise up the shield of faith. And the way of what faith means there is that the shield for you and I is faith itself. It's faith itself. Faith is the shield. What shields us from the flaming as the enemy shoots lies, as the enemy shoots deception, as the enemy shoots false truths, as the enemy shoots false doctrine, as all these things come, the way that we protect ourselves is to raise up the shield, which is faith. Which is faith. And what do we mean by faith? What I don't mean again, and I will say this till I'm blue in the face because it's one of the things I think we most misunderstand. Uh, faith is not wishful thinking. There's some good-hearted Aggie, and I love him, who has faith that we're going to a bowl game. I do not have good wishful thinking that A&M's going to a bowl game. And for you diehard Aggies, I'm not trying, I just, it's, it's the example that popped in my mind, okay? It's, I don't, I'm not trying to be harsh. Wishful thinking is not Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones throwing his foot out and going, man, I really hope there's something here. Faith is confidently, intentionally resting the fullness of our being on that which is absolutely true. It's, not, it's why it's not wishful. It's not wishful because it's true. And we rest the fullness of our being, though it's unseen. Which is why right now we walk by faith and not by sight. It's why in eternity we will walk by sight. And understand what this means practically. How do you practically raise up the shield of faith? We looked at it last week. That is what taking captive our thoughts are. It's what appropriating the truth of Scripture into our lives is. Raising the shield of faith is when the enemy shoots a lie at you and you hear you, you hear that arrow whistling through the air. You see that flame rolling off of it. Raising the shield of faith is speaking the truth to that lie, speaking the truth and actually choosing to believe and rest on it. And here's the key. According to 1 Corinthians 10, it's doing that as many times as it takes. Because I think for a lot of us, we go, oh, there's the temptation, there's that lie. Okay, I'm going to raise the shield of faith. I spoke truth to it. Boom, one and done. No. You may have childlike, unbelievable faith, brother and sister. But the enemy may launch 10,000 arrows at you. And you're going to have to hold the shield of faith by the grace and power of God up for all 10,000. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God, will, God is faithful. He won't allow any one of us to be tempted beyond what we're able. And with every temptation, there's a way out in Christ Jesus. And then it says this statement, so you may be able to endure. Endure does not imply one time. Endure implies multiple times. 
Endure implies holding the shield of faith even when it keeps rattling. And I think this is where some have gone, listen, there, there are some people in this room, there are many young people who are battling with the enemy, shooting them with lies, with false truths, things about their identity, things about uh, uh, what they are, things about their worth, uh, suicidal thoughts, depression. I mean, you can go to, we can come up with a million examples and, and we go, well, raise up your shield of faith. And they raise it up once and they go, but it's still coming. It's not working. No, it is working. Nowhere in scripture is it promised that if you hold up the shield once, you're done. The posture of holding up the shield of faith is our entire life until the Lord calls us home. And there will be some lies the enemy hurls and you throw the shield of faith up and it seems like it's one and done. And then 10 years later, he comes back with it again. There are gonna be some lies. The enemy sees you getting tired, weak. He's, a, he's that lion stalking you. He sees it's that moment where you're weak and he's gonna take captive and launch a volley. And you're gonna to have to hide behind that shield of faith and you're gonna be tempted as, as the sparks fly off in either direction. You're gonna be tempted to get nervous and as the, you hear the pounding, you're gonna be tempted. But faith, resting in the gospel, guarded by the righteousness of Christ, committed to living out righteous, bound in the belt of truth, that faith anchors behind and keeps eyes on Christ. Not on the arrows, it listens not to the whistling of the arrows hitting, but to the sound of Christ's voice. It looks not at the sparks of fire as, as, the enemy, as the arrows bounce off, but it looks to the love of Christ poured out on the cross to see him sitting there resurrected at the right hand of God. This is the shield of faith. It is submitting to his truth, which is what James 4 says. We'll see in a few weeks on Sunday mornings. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee. The helmet of salvation. Uh, the helmet would, would mark who, whose side you were on, just like in a football game. You got all these people running, all these guys running this way and that way. How do you know who's who? Well, you can say, well, the jersey color. Well, sometimes. Uh, but the helmets mark the logos. There. The helmet protects your head. The, the helmet was the last piece you put on before taking up the, sh the shield. And very simply here, it, the helmet would represent a lot of the things and overlap we've already seen. But if you want to try to give a little bit of distinction, it's this. Do you know who you are in Christ, brother and sister? It's knowing your identity in Christ wearing that helmet. It says, then taking up the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the sword there used to be a show on a, a there used to be a show that the, the Roman well let me say this the Roman soldier sword was not you know the big giant Scottish Highlander sword that's four feet long it's it's not the samurai sword that that chop it's this short sword that was perfectly made for close combat and 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 jabbing and jest and and in, and in your mind you go man all those other swords this is, maybe this is just me as a as a young teenager even college I was like all those other swords are so much cooler. Little short sword. Well, there was a show, some channel where they would they would pick two weapons of historical warfare and they would do all these tests to show you how they were used. One of those included, they would hang up a cow carcass. And they would attack it as if it was a person in battle with the swords. Oh my goodness, watching them take the Roman sword, whoa. Obliterated that thing to shreds speaks of the sword, speaks of this offensive weapon. And what is that sword? The word of God. How does Jesus combat the enemy's lies in Matthew 4, tempted in the wilderness? Not with pithy sayings, not with self-help mumbo jumbo, but with scripture. Now listen, I'm not saying if you can't recite a verse word for word, you can't take up the sword of the spirit. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you see how to fight. It's with the word of God. Which again, goes back to, if we don't know the word, how are we gonna fight? How do we use? We, we use the word, we concern ourselves with his word, we pray the word, we speak the word aloud, we know the word, we meditate on the word like our life depends on it because it does. If we don't know the word, we're running out into a battle that is after souls, both to destroy ours as a believer and to literally, eternally destroy those of the lost. And it's like running out there, it's not even bringing a knife to a gun show, it's running to a gun show with nothing. It's the word, knowing the word. We speak the truth from the word to fight the lies, the deception, the temptation, the spiritual assault that we find ourselves in. It is the word. By the way, the word, Hebrews 4 says, is living and active. It's not just any sword. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces the division, not just between bone and marrow, 
but soul and spirit. It pierces divisions. You and I don't even fully understand what they are. It's the Word. We allow the Word to pierce us, to convict us. We, we, we stand on the Word. We use the Word. We rest in the Word. It comes down to the Word. But, but, the Word is not the only weapon given. Oh, and by the way, let me say this about the word. Also implied, how do you use the sword of the Spirit? It certainly means knowing the word, but it also means applying it correctly. Falsely applied scripture is just as bad as what Satan does. So if we're going to apply the word, we better make sure we've studied it to know what it actually says versus what it doesn't. And you better always. It doesn't bug me if you go, Pastor, I got this question. I heard you say this. Is this what you meant or this what you meant? I'm not telling you to not trust me. I am telling you to make sure that it doesn't matter who you listen to, me or anybody else, you compare it all to his word. There's a young, I don't know who he is. I don't know what church, it's definitely a, a younger, more contemporary styled church somewhere. I don't know what, what, what kind of denominational background it is or not, but he made this statement. Uh, he, he made this, I showed it to my dad and I thought, this is absolutely nuts. It sounds really good. He said, why did, why did, he said, after years, I've, I've never caught this, but, but for years. And then he said, then I asked myself the question, why did Satan go after Eve and not Adam? And he said, and then I realized, if you read the passage, Eve isn't named until after the fall, which means before she's named, she's just the woman. She doesn't have identity. And so Satan goes, sees one person with no identity and one person with identity because Adam had his name. And Satan went after the person with no identity. Hell, brothers and sisters, if you don't know your identity in Christ, Satan's going to come after you. Well, yeah, Satan certainly will attack you and your identity in Christ. Here's the problem with that line of reasoning. You just said that's what Scripture means. The problem with that is if Eve has no identity before the fall, then God made something less than perfect and sin was already in the picture. Because identity is core to who we are. If God made someone without identity, then he made something lesser than what he makes, which means creation was already jacked up beforehand. That's a false application of Scripture, but it sounds really good. Just, if we're going to use the sword of the Spirit, you've got to use the sword correctly because just like the sword can injure the enemy, you can flip that sword around and stab yourself in the gut too. One will bring victory. One will bring damage. The other damage. But look at this here at the end. Verse 18. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be alert with all perseverance in every request for the saints. Pray in my behalf that speech may be given to me for the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Here's the other weapon, church family. The other weapon is prayer. It's the word and prayer. Every other piece of the armor is defensive. The two offensive weapons are the word and prayer. He says with every prayer, with every petition, praying when in the spirit always in the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, praying in the Spirit is not uh, closing your eyes and some kind of crazy gibberish coming out and you have no clue what it is and you get up and you're none the wiser for it. That's not what praying in the Spirit is. Praying in the Spirit means praying as one filled with the Spirit, where the Spirit is who is driving you. It means walking in the Spirit, obeying. It means being surrendered to the Spirit, taping, taking up of the cross. When we speak of praying at all times in the Spirit, we mean prayer that is born from the Holy Spirit, that is guided by the Holy Spirit, that is impassioned by the Holy Spirit. It is nothing short of praying the will of God. Because what does the Spirit pray at all times? The will of God. It is praying the will of God, which means when we sit down to pray and, and, and to battle spiritually, we are not praying for our wish list. And that's not to be taken to some extreme to say you can't ever pray what's on your heart and the desire. That, that's not even what I'm saying. What I am saying is to really pray, to really pray in the heat of the battle is to, is to know the will of God and to pray the will of God. To pray the will of God. We see this, we saw this with Elijah back this summer. In James, chapter, in James chapter 5, James picks up on it. And he says, Elijah prayed for three years that it wouldn't rain and it wouldn't rain. And then he prayed that it would rain and it did rain. Well, why was Elijah's prayer effective? 
Well, certainly James says, because the prayer of a righteous man is effective, avails much. But why was Elijah even praying that? Because God said, thus is my will, pray this. It wasn't because Elijah just woke up and went, you know what, it'd be a really great thing to get a, get a, get a drought going. That's going to make me the number one most hated person in all the land. It's praying the will of God at all times. And look at the words that are surrounding it, church family, with all perseverance. Staying alert. Staying alert means to be alertly concerned about. It means to stay awake. It means to stay up through the night. It means to suffer from insomnia, to be watchful, to be vigilant. All perseverance means to be firm, to endure, to be consistent, diligent. Which tells us this, church family, that when it comes to prayer, it will be easy to neglect prayer. Which is why we got to stay awake. It also tells me that it will be easy to give up in prayer. Which is why we have to persevere. Here's the reality, church family. The prayerful person driven by the Spirit will be a mighty warrior of God. The prayerful church driven by the Spirit. Suited in the armor of God. Rightly wielding the sword of the Spirit. Being alert and persevering in prayer. Will be a church that as a church is a mighty warrior for God. No matter what the cultural climate is around it. So, church family, that's why we're going to finish tonight in prayer. It's why I'm trying to find ways on Wednesday nights to bring in moments of prayer. It is why I could not be more proud than the fact that we have a layperson prayer meeting every Monday night. And if you are able to be there once or twice or every week, be there. It's why I'm grateful we have people praying at 8.30 on Sunday morning. It's why we are actively working at getting the 24-7 prayer ministry vamped up where every person has the opportunity to take an hour of prayer for our church a week and cover the church in prayer and cover our community in prayer. It's why. It's why I think the greatest sin right now amongst Southern Baptist Convention is arrogance because we think we can do something for Jesus, but we've forgotten to get on our knees and beg him to move. Not because we got to beg him as if he doesn't care, but because we need to humble ourselves and recognize whether it's in our families, whether it's in our church, whether it's in our communities, all our good ideas and gimmicks and this and that will never pierce the darkness. It's him who pierces the darkness and he delights to move at the prayers of his people. Did you see what Paul said? By the way, not only just stay awake and alert and persevering and praying, but pray for me. What? That in the midst of my chains, I will know what to say, when to say it, and I will do it with boldness and clarity to point people to Jesus. Because if you, I'm not just telling you to pray because it sounds good, but because I recognize I actively need your prayer if I'm going to fulfill it. So church, understand, we have to be a praying church. If you want your family to know and love and follow Christ, we have to be praying families. We have to be praying individuals. We cannot neglect prayer and we cannot relegate prayer to the dinner table. We must be people of prayer. And if you go back and you want to study a lot of the great movements of God regionally and nationally, both in America and other parts of the world, you will find a common denominator in nearly every one. I say nearly because I don't know every single one. They all started with prayer movements. In fact, this next year on February 23rd is the, is the 200th anniversary of the original Collegiate Day of Prayer. That was started by some college students, some prayer meetings that went on for a while, and out of those prayer meetings birthed the Second Great Awakening. We've got to be people of prayer. This is how we fight spiritual warfare. We put on the armor. We put on the armor. We gird ourselves in truth. We guard ourselves in righteousness. His righteousness that he declares us righteousness, which enables us to live out his righteousness. We gird our feet with the gospel of peace to stand in it and take it out. We put on the helmet of, uh, of salvation. We, we know our identity in Christ. We take up the shield of faith. We fight with the sword of the spirit. And we get down on our knees and we engage in prayer. And so to end tonight, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm just going to ask that um, 
We're going we're gonna to pray for the same three things we've, we've been praying for around our tables. And uh, here's, here's what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, just as you, uh, as you, as I sense the room uh, kind of dying down, I'll close us out and we'll be done. But there's three things we've been praying. One is that just as a church family, God would breathe a fresh wind. God would light a fresh fire of, of revival in our hearts. That any areas we need to repent, we would repent. Any areas we need to encourage each other, we'd encourage each other. That we would be responsive as a church to the Lord. One. Two, that there would be an awakening in our community. That the lost, our neighbors, our coworkers, our students, that there would be an awakening in our community to recognize that the, the messages this world's pushing, they don't bring peace, life, happiness, anything. That there would be an awakening and a desperation to know truth. And then three, that as we look at our culture, as we look at where we're going, uh, that God would just allow, that, God, uh, that as we pray for our rulers, that God would grant them wisdom, that they would be humble to receive it, that if they refuse it, that God would deal with them justly, and that in all things, in our land and other lands, that God would allow truth to shine brightly and expose the lies of the enemy that are running rampant in culture. Those three things, as you're led Let's pray at our tables, and as I sense it dies down, I'll close this out and uh, um, adjourn our time for the night. Father, I cannot um, say thank you enough for allowing us to be a church family. God, it is, it is a joy and a privilege to get to be brothers and sisters in Christ and you, but specifically to get to, to live out that relationship here in this place, in our community. God, to, to come together. Lord, thank you for people who are faithful to come, who are, who are faithfully, Lord, brothers and sisters here in our church that are faithfully living out uh, your righteousness in, in the world. And Father, you just continue to move and stir our hearts. This church is not my church. It's not um, fill in the blank with anybody else's name's church. Jesus, it is your church. We are your church. You are our head. So Jesus, may your good and perfect will be done in us and be done through us. May we submit to your movement and stirring, conviction, encouragement, emboldening as you move in us. God, and as you move through us, Lord, may it be done in your might and your power by your grace. Lord, unless you build it, we labor in vain. God, and we don't labor for people to say Jesus is awesome, Lord. We, we labor to know you and love you and follow you and to see other people who would recognize and say, Jesus, you really are, Lord, and I need you to save me. And then we rejoice with you as you save them, as they come into the fold, as we continue to disciple them, Lord, as we continue to disciple each other. Father, we recognize where we're at. Lord, it's, it's almost um, overwhelming the amount of examples from any one news day you can pull as far as um, lies and truth going on in our culture. So, Father, may truth be seen. May lies be exposed. Because you are a God of truth. 
Lord, we do not know when the time of your return is. And it may be near. And if it's near, then find us faithful. Lord, I do not know, regardless of whether your return is near or far, that there's anything that would prohibit another movement of you and our community. So Lord, we ask that you revive our hearts and you awaken our community. Got that here in Pflugerville and Hutto and Elgin and Maynard and Round Rock and Northeast Austin, Lord, that you would stir. That we would see a coming of men and women and boys and girls to faith in you. That you would add to our number. Lord, not so we can compare stats with other churches, but so, Lord, that that there would be a dent made in the darkness that surrounds this community. Jesus, you are on your throne. You have not stopped moving. Lord, may we remember who you are. May we remember whose we are. God, and may you open doors and fill our hearts with wisdom and boldness to speak rightly and clearly the wonderful mystery of your gospel. Jesus, we look to you. You are our hope. It's in your name I pray. Amen.